produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we look at the varied effects the pandemic has had on Australian farmers. It's not uncommon for farmers to lose a season because of weather variability or bushfire or drought, despite the fact that there have been pockets that have been really hard hit. You know, if you're an avocado grower, it turns out that people eat a lot more smashed avocados in cafes than what they do at home. We do know how to bounce back and dire circumstances is not new for the farming industry. And we catch up with celebrity chef Matt Moran to find out how he's adapted his business during the coronavirus. It was about observing what was going on and then pivoting. We had some fantastic weeks until we then reopened. It's something that I've actually kept. So Chiswick is still available for takeaway and so is North Bondi Fish. So it was really creating a, a completely new market. That's all coming up on the program when we discover what happens next. Well, the evolving uncertainty of COVID-19 has had a variety of impacts across the food and agribusiness sector. For some businesses, they've seen a rapid increase in domestic demand, while some exporters and local food producers have had to try to find ways to offset the steep drop in consumption from restaurants and cafes. And while most agricultural markets were boosted by widespread summer rains in the lead-up to the pandemic, there are still areas that need to be monitored for medium and long-term impacts. To look at this in more detail, I spoke to Emma Germano, Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, and Robert Poole, National Sector Lead, Consumer and Retail for KPMG Australia. Emma, if I could start with you, as a producer running a family farm, has the effect of COVID-19 changed the way consumers see Australia's agricultural sector? Oh, look, it's definitely having an impact on um, people's perceptions of what the industry is about. And I think what it actually has highlighted is how little a lot of people know about the um, food supply chains. We've got a little retail store on our farm and we've seen the panic buying happening here. And uh, it's really interesting that it's that trust factor. So despite the fact that the panic buying has kind of settled down and the supermarkets have largely got their products back on the shelves, we've seen that increased demand through our store maintain. And I think it's just because people had their their trust shaken a little bit and they're changing some of their purchasing habits. So I think it's absolutely um, highlighted food security for Australians and probably for the first time in a generation or more for many Australians. So yes, I think it's absolutely had an impact. Robert, what effects are you seeing in the wake of the coronavirus on agribusiness? It's been a really mixed bag, Bernard. Certain markets have been really badly affected. For example, if you're the food service sort of entertainment events kind of market, in some cases your whole business just disappeared overnight if you're a food company going into that sector. Um, on the other hand, if you were going into retail in that early panic buying phase, a lot of food companies have actually improved sales and done really well out of it. Do you think those businesses that have been badly affected – do you think that they will come back from this or do you think this is a fatal blow? The ones I've worked with will come back. They've pivoted pretty quickly. I think generally speaking, the food sector's done pretty well at moving quickly to shift channels. There's a case of a company I was working with that was very focused on food service and cafes and restaurants. They were able to pivot quickly into retail, for example. And also that sector did continue to operate slightly better than they first thought too. 
I'd add to that just that the agricultural supply chain is a very resilient sector. It's not uncommon for farmers to lose a season because of weather variability or bushfire or drought despite the fact that there have been pockets that have been really hard hit, as Robert mentioned. You know, if you're an avocado grower, it turns out that people eat a lot more smashed avocados in cafes than what they do at home. Um, we do know how to bounce back and, and that pivoting and, and the managing of um, what can sometimes be dire circumstances is not new for the farming industry. Um, we've been managing those type of impacts for, for generations and um, this, is, this is not really different from that. Great to hear that the avocado industry is likely to come back. Uh, look, there's there's no doubt been a drop-off in global demand for Australian agricultural product. How difficult has that been for the sector? Yeah, so it's interesting, Bernard, in the sense that we all sort of panicked at the start and we were focused on retail and panic buying and toilet rolls and whether we we're going to run out of baked beans. But actually now there's a much more fundamental question, which is the underlying demand globally, cotton and wool, for example, where we've seen a big drop off in farm gate prices because fundamental apparel demand is low. And, you know, retail's been smashed in the apparel sector. Sugar's another fascinating case in the sense that the low oil price, the low demand for, for petrol has impacted on sugar because sugar in Brazil in particular is going into ethanol. So you've now seen a sort of an oversupply of sugar in the human consumption part of that sector. So some really interesting structural market issues, Bernard, that we're now facing. Emma, has a rise in domestic demand to some extent offset the drop-off in global demand? It's really commodity specific, that question, I think. We were really nervous at the beginning when we started the first lockdown around what to do with our sheep. So we turn off about a thousand plus uh, lambs each year and we were wondering what are we supposed to do? You know, we were being told that um, international markets were shutting or that there were going to be delays in the supply chain and things like that. So it can cause the farmers to panic and say, right, let's just offload this. And so we saw little dips as we were having little announcements. We saw dips in the prices and then um, the, you know, red meat prices would regain themselves very quickly. We also have to remember that we're coming out of a, a period of drought where we've had, you know, the national flock and the national herd is, you know, much lower than ordinary. So, um, yeah, some of that domestic demand is ensuring that we've got these supply chains to continue to supply into. But there's just so many factors and so many variabilities that impact all of the agricultural supply chains, really. But we haven't seen any of them drop off and keel over, except for those fibre industries that we've been talking about. Robert, how quickly will the drop-off in global demand bounce back, do you think? Yeah, so there's a very specific answer to that if you uh, listen to Brendan Rin, who's our chief economist, about 18 months, that the world hopefully is going back to some normality and, and that's a specific estimate that we've made in the agriculture space. I think Emma's point's exactly right, though. You know, Some uh, industries are sort of structurally in a good position from a supply-demand point of view, so prices will be more buoyant in the meat sector, for example, whereas others like sugar maybe, uh, you know, have got some supply-demand negativity where there's an oversupply of sugar because of the ethanol question. But overall, generally speaking, I think about 12 to 18 months, we should hopefully see the world demand situation coming back to normal. Overall, what have been the unexpected opportunities to emerge from the pandemic for farming and agribusiness? Emma, what do you think? 
Oh, I guess this renewed, um, maybe not understanding, but this desire to find out where does my food come from. I think we've seen the Australian made um, website has had ridiculous amount of traffic on it that has absolutely spiked. So people are now just not just asking where does their food come from, but all of those extra things that they buy. Um, I think there is a sense of, of loyalty to Australian made and Australian grown. And I think that that's a huge opportunity for our entire nation because our food security really will totally under to pin our, our national security at a global level. And I, and I think that that's um, really beneficial. <laughs> there is sometimes the tendency during global recession to pull away from globalisation, which would be a mistake for Australian agriculture. We absolutely need to ensure that we have those supply chains in place and that market out there, that global market, traditionally really enjoyed our product. We need to make sure that those markets are diverse. But I, I think the fact that we're all questioning who produces our food and where does it go to and how do we bolster that, that this attitude of support around that I think is probably the best silver lining to have come out of COVID-19. Emma and Robert, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. He's well known for his appearances across television. On programs such as The Great Australian Bake Off, Paddock to Plate and MasterChef. And he's also the creative and strategic force behind some of the nation's top restaurants, such as Aria and Chiswick. Matt Moran is a chef, restaurateur and farmer, with a passion for quality produce that is fresh and seasonal. I recently caught up with Matt to find out how he and his businesses have been affected by the pandemic. Matt Moran, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. It's obvious from the popularity of TV cooking programs and the rise of the celebrity chef that Australians have had a long-held respect and admiration for the food sector. What effect has the pandemic had on this? Oh, look, the, the pandemic has, has been, uh, for our whole industry, has been absolutely devastating. You know, we went from, uh, you know, a million miles an hour and, and uh, having a lot of fun, you know, planning our, our year and what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I remember we had a board meeting and uh, when it first started in, in early March or, you know, second week of March, thinking, God, what would this do to our industry? What would it do to our, our company if we, uh, if we were 10% down in revenue? And uh, it looked pretty bad. And then, you know, we, we sort of followed along and looked at 20% and, and someone joked and said, could you imagine if it was 50%? And uh, we looked at that and that was just absolutely devastating. And then within, I think it was about two weeks, not even two weeks, we were completely shut and no revenue. <laughs> so it, uh, it was from a very, very um, big, you know, harsh stop. Matt, your career has spanned over 30 years. I'd imagine that you would have seen a lot of different approaches to food from both a farming and a restaurant perspective. In your view, what long-term impacts will the pandemic have on the industry? Oh. On both industries, in fact, farming and, and restaurant. Well, you know, it's I, I was in a position when it first happened, you know, and an example, um, you know, if you are a, an artisan boutique cheese manufacturer... And, uh, you know, you've got a very special product, but it's, it's not for, you know, the, the big supermarket chains. You know, it's, it's really high end and, and uh, you know, you are supplying to all the top restaurants. And then the pandemic hits, 
you're gone, you're wiped out. You've got nothing. You've got nowhere of selling it. Um, you know, a lot of them went quickly online and, uh, and you know, we, we helped them out by promoting it as much as we possibly could. Um, you know, it, it, people have got to realise what the knock-on effect is when, when restaurants stop the whole sort of industry behind it sort of stops. And, you know, it just, it's a snowball effect because, you know, it, it's delivery people, it's, um, you know, it's manufacturing people, it's it's farmers, it, it, and it, it, it really had a, a massive effect on uh, not just our industry, but the ones that actually support our industry. And, you know, people pivoted and, and did a lot more online and, you know, started doing online deliveries. Um, and, you know, I know some of the big meat guys that we were 90% to restaurants, wholesaling, to all of a sudden have to become retailers. Uh, look, long-term effects, it's very hard to say because, it, you know, when it first started, you know, everyone said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know because it's changing every day. And it really is that thing of, of change. Like, you know, you look at Melbourne three weeks ago, you know, they were coming out of lockout and, and, you know, all my mates in Melbourne were about to open their restaurants and I think they were open for 12 days before they locked down again. Um, and what we're seeing here now, you know, we, we don't know what the effect's going to be. So we, we're just sort of fingers crossed and, and hoping. So it's a really unknown what's going to happen long term in, in our industry. Matt, you're not only a chef, but you're also a farmer. Yep which makes you pretty unique in the industry. I also spoke with Emma Germano, Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation for this episode, who said farmers are feeling like rock stars at the moment because of the public's intense interest in where food comes from. Mm. Have you noticed this shift as well? Look, I think that's been going on for a while. You know, you only have to look in restaurants over the years and you read their menus and, you know, it'll often say, you know, David Blackmore Wagyu or, or Rangers Valley, you know, uh, beef fillet. And, and they're brands, obviously, and they're, they're brands that are, are known for their, their quality. And, and with things like the Delicious Produce Awards and all that sort of stuff, it's actually highlighting brands. So people identify a lot more with, um, with you know, what is, what is good quality and what is not. But when it comes to the background and the story of where the produce comes from, I think people want to know. So that, that's actually here to stay, I think. I noticed that during the national lockdown, your restaurant Chiswick switched to doing takeaway, but you mainly operate in fine dining. So how challenging was it to make the change and did it require you to see your business in a different way? Yeah, look, you know, I, you know, I am known for fine dining, you know, meaning Aria. A lot of my other places aren't as such fine dining, but they're obviously restaurants and they're not takeaway outlets. So it was about observing what was going on and then pivoting. And um, we had some fantastic weeks until we then reopened. But, you know, it's something that I've actually kept up on. So Chiswick is still available for takeaway and so is North Bondo Fish. So it was really creating a, a completely new market. And even on Saturday night, you know, I think we had about 10 takeaway orders. And 10 may not seem a lot, but they're not just getting a packet of chips or a, a piece of fish. They're actually ordering a whole dinner. So an average spend for a, for a takeaway meal is, is up around the $200 mark. And um, when you've got 10 and it's 200 bucks, it's next to two grand's worth of revenue that you thought that you'd never get. So it's something that we'd probably keep up. That's my next question. Do you think that uh, this will become part of the restaurant business going forward? More people doing takeaway as well as fine dining? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I don't know whether the takeaway model would work at Aria. You know, if we did go into lockdown again, uh, I would really start to contemplate doing something at Aria and and I'm not sure what what I could do, but I'd have to do some sort of takeaway 
uh, model, I think, because it's there now and it's reopened. And to close it down is unbelievably expensive. It's obviously really expensive to open it back up again. But if we could pivot fairly quickly and, and have some sort of takeaway model there, I'd probably, I'd probably go for it too. What have been the surprising trends in the food sector that you've seen emerging from the pandemic? Mm. Where have been the unexpected opportunities? Oh, look, I think everybody is making bread at the moment. <laughs> That's something that I've, I've seen everywhere. You know, everyone's fermenting. Um, everyone's made, you know, different breads. And, you know, the, I think the chefs all started it and then you just saw it everywhere. As for opportunities, look, I, I think there's been, you know, heaps. There's, there's no question. I started a Friday night, um, the one of the first into lockdown, uh, a few friends of mine that uh, aren't in the industry asked me if I could just do a little cooking class. Um, so I, I got online and I Zoomed seven or eight friends and, and you know, I did something very, very simple. Um, it was just like, a, a you know, the perfect ch- chicken schnitzel. Um, it really dawned on me quickly how bad my friends could cook. Um, you know, one guy left in the middle of it to go and get a lemon because he forgot. And then that just sort of started me thinking, you know, how can I make this and monetize it? You know, I partnered with uh, Harris Farm for a little bit and we were doing Friday nights, you know, live cooking classes with Matt and you could get sent a box of box of fruit and veg and the ingredients and, and cook along. And and uh, and then I started doing a lot of private ones for different people, you know, uh, businesses that, you know, wanted to keep their, their staff close. I did one for 400 people one night uh, live is where, you know, we sent out what the ingredients were and then... Uh, and then I got on live on, on Zoom or whatever whatever it was and then just went ahead with it. And I've, I've probably done a good 15 of them since lockdown. So it's, it's been keeping me busy, which has been a lot of fun. And do you think, again, that is something that you would continue post-lockdown? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not cheap to set up a cooking school or a cooking class um, in an auditorium and, and have multiple people actually get there and, and ticket it and do whatever else. But to do it live and in the comfort of their own home is where they can... You know, I can send them out a, a list and, and we do it together. You know, I've done small ones, 10 people, um, 20 people or, you know, up to 400. And it's just, uh, it's quite engaging. You know, if they're, if they're under sort of 20 where you can actually speak to them all and they can talk back to you, it's been a lot of fun actually. You mentioned earlier a lot of people have been baking bread during the pandemic. So Matt, what's your lockdown go-to recipe? Well, look, you know, being a farmer, I'm pretty partial to my old lamb and, uh, you know, we produce lamb and, and we sell it at Chiswick, of course, and and uh, something the kids always love and, and that's lamb cutlets. You know, it's like a, a meat paddle pop, I suppose. For six lamb cutlets, it's about 100 and, 120 grams of panko crumbs and then I put about 60 grams of grated parmesan. It's got to be fresh grated parmesan. And then I just sort of pan them, you know, cover them in the, the mixture of the, the crumbs and the parmesan. So I sort of dip my cutlet into an egg and then crumb it, press it down so it sticks to it a little bit. I don't use flour because I don't need that extra extra flour on it. I season it, salt and pepper, and then I just pan fry it in a pan with some olive oil. And, and uh, because it's got the fattiness of the of the panko crumbs and the cheese starts to melt all around the outside, big squeeze of lemon just before you serve it and it's uh, the perfect um, lamb cutlet crumbed. And can you have that with smashed avocado on the side? You, you can have that with smashed <laughs> You can have that as smashed avocado on the side or um, good good old mashed potato, I reckon, is probably better. Mashed potato and smashed avocado. Yeah, yeah. Matt Moran, thanks very much for helping us discover what happens next.
I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. Hi, Bernard. Hi, Whitney. What a fascinating episode. Wasn't it great to hear both Emma and Matt comment about the community's interest in the food sector? It is certainly something that has garnered community interest not just over the last five years or so. This has been gathering momentum for the last 10 or 15 years. And I think that it goes hand in hand with Australia's rising prosperity. Uh, As we uh, increase in prosperity, then people can afford to eat out. Uh, I remember as a kid in the 1960s, eating out meant uh, fish and chips uh, or a counter meal. Whereas today, of course, we have every, every type of restaurant or of cafe and it's it's become part of Australian culture. I think that this is uh, going hand in hand with rising prosperity. And of course, during the pandemic, it's not so much cafes and restaurants, but uh, the ability to cook from home. There always is an angle that seems to feed into the demand for an interest in that whole cuisine culture, if you like. I guess you could tell the wealth of a country, Bernard, on its um, consumption of smashed avocado, couldn't you? Well, you know, everything comes back to uh, to smashed avocado. Do you know, I did not know what an avocado was until I was about 16. Really? It was a very exotic fruit. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? I don't know. Maybe somebody could write in to us and tell us if it's a fruit or a vegetable. I have no (laughs) doubt that my Instagram will be now flooded with people telling me exactly what, uh, what the derivation of smashed avocado is. I thought what Matt did in lockdown, you know, when he was talking about how he decided to hold a cooking class for some of his mates and then he thought, oh, how could I monetize this? You know, he started holding virtual cooking classes. was really cool. What did you think, Bernard? Did you think you might want to take part in one of those? Well, I was certainly very interested. Um, I'm not a great cook myself. Um, I do do the odd thing, but uh, I'm not, it's not, it's not, my, it's not a core interest, but I did think that was really clever. And I think he said he had something like 400 people online uh, watching his cooking class. Now, we have seen some cafes and restaurants pivot towards selling grocery grocery items and most certainly selling uh, takeaway meals. So that was, that was evidence of businesses being agile. And of course, Matt, being the entrepreneur that he is, takes this one step further and thinks, well, I can actually put together my skills in presentation and my network to leverage something like a cooking class. And who, I mean, if that's your thing, then certainly you would want to connect into a show where uh, Matt Moran is teaching you how to cook. So it's terrific. This is the whole thing about the pandemic, being quite agile and thinking, what are your skill sets? How can you actually leverage greater connectivity? It doesn't really always need to be terrifically commercial, but it needs to engage, build reputation, build a relationship, establish customer bases. And who knows, in the post-pandemic world, uh, many of these side platforms, if you like, might be continued as, uh, as a strengthening of the business going forward. Matt, actually, um, he did share 
a recipe uh, for crumbed lamb cutlets. So maybe you could make that for your family. You could have a go at that. <laughs> I could have I could have a go at that. That's not beyond me. Of course, the beauty of this is that I can claim that it went stunningly well and there is no proof. I don't have to demonstrate the evidence of me actually doing that. <laughs> I must have a devious <laughs> mind because I think, how can I get around that? How can I be checked up on <laughs> All right, well, that's all for the program. But if you'd like to check out Matt Moran's recipe for crumbed lamb cutlets, head over to the show notes. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.